Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's VCCR Rounds. I'm your host, Sean Kane. Today I'm speaking with Joe Mensch, PharmD, BCPS, a clinical pharmacist at St. Peter's Hospital in Albany, New York. Joe Minch, better known as Pharmacy Joe, is a doctor of pharmacy and board-certified pharmacotherapy specialist. He is the author of A Pharmacist's Guide to Inpatient Medical Emergencies, host of The Elective Rotation, a critical care pharmacy podcast, and creator of an online critical care pharmacy academy found at PharmacyJoe.com. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures to share? Uh, Nope, I have no conflicts of interest with the pharmaceutical industry and nothing to disclose. Today we're going to be speaking with Dr. Mensch about airway pharmacology, so the medications used primarily for intubation. First off, Joe, can you kind of tell the listeners a little bit more about why the drug therapy is so important in, in the process of intubating a patient? Sure, and uh, let me say thank you, Sean, for having me. The drug therapy that we'll be discussing primarily is sedatives and paralytic agents used for intubation. And really, the the goals of these medications are twofold. You want the patient to be able to tolerate the procedure, um, ideally not experience any pain, not have any awareness of the procedure going on. And also, you need optimal intubating conditions to be present for the provider that's doing the intubation. So for example, you don't want your patient to be biting down or fighting during the process of the intubation. Exactly. Yep. Nothing, nothing that would cause uh, an obstruction of the airway that would make it uh, more difficult for the provider. Yeah. And it, kind of in the interest of the VCCR timeframe that we have, there's clearly a lot of topics that we could be covering with intubation in terms of everything from pre-oxygenation to intubation techniques and things like that. But as we discussed before the podcast started recording, we're really going to try to focus just on the drug therapy used during the intubation and focus on agent selection and some of the side effects of those agents and things like that. Why don't we start with the sedatives itself? So as you mentioned, we kind of want our patient to be basically knocked out during the process of the intubation procedure. What are some of the ideal qualities of a sedative that we'd like to have when intubating a patient? I would say um, you're definitely wanting something that has a rapid onset, a sedative that has a sufficient duration for the procedure, something in a perfect world, we would want something that's hemodynamically neutral and uh, a medication that has minimal adverse effects. As we'll talk about each agent, you know, we have kind of pros and cons to a lot of them. Do we kind of have, I guess, what you'd call the ideal sedative available or is there kind of a downside to each of the sedatives that are available to us? Yeah, I would say there's there's nothing ideal just just yet that's out there. Um, there's certainly a lot of preferences that uh, that providers and and pharmacists have, uh, maybe strong preferences for agents. But the perfect sedative, I don't think I could argue that it exists. Okay, so why don't we just start with what do you see most commonly in the ICU that you work in in terms of the sedative used for intubation? Yep, our go-to agent is Atomidate. And this is an imidazole non-barbiturate hypnotic, and at the proper dose, it will induce general anesthesia. And uh, this, I'd say, is, uh, is the go-to agent, and, and it's given in uh, combination with fentanyl. Okay. And then what are some of the qualities of Atomidate that make it your go-to agent? It's got a very nice onset uh, of action, about 30 seconds, maybe up to 60 seconds, and the duration is very good. It'll last anywhere from 4 to 10 minutes. The side effects are not very significant. There's maybe some myoclonus, pain at injection site, which the patient is probably not going to be complaining about, 
being that you're giving uh, fentanyl as well. There aren't any absolute contraindications to Atomidate. There is concern over adrenal suppression, but many experts think that this is unfounded. I tend to agree with that in the context of the single dose given uh, for intubation because there's really no effect that's been proven that's uh, that's clinically significant, such as a, a change in mortality. But I think in thinking about some of the adrenal suppression controversy, we also have to be thinking about things like how long does the drug work for? And is it reasonable to think that a drug that works so shortly would appreciably suppress adrenal response for a very long period of time? And also some of these patients, depending on your shop, may be receiving something like hydrocortisone that presumably might blunt any adverse effect of cortisol suppression. Absolutely. And I and I will mention uh, the dose. Um, the ideal dose for Atomidate would be 0.3 milligrams per kilo. It can be given by a, a fairly rapid IV push. And my, my general philosophy, I'll say, uh, with doses for, for intubation uh, is go big or go home. It is very unusual that you would hurt a patient by rounding up, but you could certainly drag the procedure out or make it more unpleasant by rounding down. And I mean, I think that the dosing is something, as both you and I are pharmacists, we should kind of touch on just briefly. Are there any dose-dependent side effects that we see with Atomidate that we would be concerned about in rounding up, for example? Uh, There's none that I know of. I mean, obviously, we need to be prepared that it's going to knock out the patient's respiratory drive, but that's the goal uh, in this case. Um, And if you were using Atomidate for a deep sedation procedure, like a dislocated shoulder that's being put back in, then you would be using a a lower dose, uh, and you would not want to, to cross over from deep sedation to general anesthesia in that case. Yeah, and, you know, we're going to talk about some agents later. Propofol comes to mind as an example where if you give a very large dose with the thought of the dose doesn't matter that much, you may see some dose-dependent hypotension, for example, that we wouldn't be worried about. So at least with Atomidate, you do have that comfort of rounding your dose up still within a reasonable range isn't going to cause massive hemodynamic instability or something along those lines where we'd be concerned about that. Yeah. Okay, so then let's say that for whatever reason you don't want to use Atomidate, what are some of our other options that you'll see in terms of sedation for the purposes of intubation? The other other two options that I that I would judge as reasonable would be either propofol, like you mentioned, or ketamine. Okay, so why don't we start with ketamine? And ketamine, I know, is at least in the FOMED world, the free open access medical education world, is kind of a, a hot topic. So what can you tell us about how ketamine works and why it's kind of, even though it's an older drug, we've seen kind of a resurgence of excitement about ketamine? Sure. Ketamine, it's an NMDA receptor antagonist, and it does have some very ideal properties that uh, that none of the other sedatives have. First of all, it should be either cardiovascular neutral or slightly positive as far as uh, effects on tachycardia and hypertension. It also uh, provides analgesia uh, in and of itself, so there is no need to give it in combination with fentanyl like you would Atomidate or Propofol. And under the right conditions, uh, it's not going to cause respiratory depression. Um, So this may be ideal if maybe you have concerns about your ability to achieve the airway on on the first try and you don't want to knock out the patient's respiratory drive. Now, there, there are some caveats both to that and to the uh, hemodynamic effects. If you push ketamine too fast 
generally 30 seconds or less, then you may have a period of apnea. And if you've selected ketamine believing that it doesn't cause respiratory depression, uh, then that can be you know quite an unpleasant su- surprise and, and make it a challenge to manage. And then as far as hypertension or tachycardia, if your patient is already depleted in their endogenous catecholamines, um, then ketamine may actually cause profound hypotension. Um, so those are, are the two caveats to its otherwise touted benefits. I think that it's probably worth emphasizing that point you just made and that, you know, one of the exciting things about ketamine is the perceived lack of respiratory depression. But as you said, large doses given very quickly may cause a period of apnea that could be very alarming to providers. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So then you mentioned it's an NMDA antagonist. And for uh, the listeners, going back to pharmacology, we kind of have GABA receptors and NMDA receptors. And normally NMDA is our excitatory receptor in, uh, in a neuron. So blocking it is going to block that excitatory pathway. And then because of that, what clinical effects do we see with, let's say, ketamine that we wouldn't see with a propofol, etomidate, or even a benzodiazepine? Yeah, one of the, one of the very interesting effects with ketamine is the type of of sedation that it provides, and that is a disassociative sedation. Um, so the uh, the patient is unable to perceive uh, their environment using their their senses. It's a cataleptic like uh, like state, and um, uh, this is due to direct uh, action on uh, the cortex and and limbic system. Also, it means that the sedative effects of ketamine are either on or off. Just like you're pregnant or not pregnant, you're either disassociated or not disassociated. Uh, and so uh, it is important when uh, using ketamine for sedation uh, that a sufficient dose is given in order to provide that disassociation. Now, the analgesic effects of ketamine, on the other hand, are provided on a continuum just like opioids. Give a little bit more ketamine, get a little bit more analgesia. So what a great point. And I think that we probably at this point should discuss some of those dosing strategies. Um, so for analgesia, for example, what kinds of doses do you see and how is it given for analgesia? Uh, if, if you were using ketamine for analgesia, uh, you'll be giving a dose somewhere between 0.15 and 0.3 milligrams per kilo IV. And this is going to be roughly equivalent to 0.1 milligrams per kilo of IV morphine in terms of analgesic uh, effect. In, in your shop, do you see this as an IV push or is it more commonly used as a continuous uh, It would be uh, either an IV push or occasionally uh, a mini bag, although uh, we are not using it as commonly, I would say, as uh, some others in, in the FOMED world that you discuss advocate it be used. And I know, at, at least in my ICU, we've used it just a handful of times. Typically, the way that we decide to use it for analgesia is we give a slow IV push of a low dose like you said, something like 10, 15, 20 milligrams, depending on the patient size. If they have a pretty good response, we may give them a continuous infusion at that same rate. But again, this is typically only as an adjunct for pain management. And hopefully the dose that we select doesn't cause any of the CNS effects that we would normally desire to have when we're thinking about intubating. Right. Patient. Generally, if, if you're keeping your dose below half a milligram per kilo, 
then you won't have to worry about uh, about that at all. Although some patients do have anxiety or a very unpleasant feeling, even with those low doses, not all the way into uh, the emergence phenomena, which would be the other potentially significant adverse reaction of ketamine. Uh, that would be when the patient, the disassociated patient, reassociates. Um, the best way to uh, to explain it is they freak out. So we're thinking nightmares, very vivid. Uh, real-life experiences that are very scary, things like that that would typically not be something that a patient would want to remember, but unfortunately they, they do remember it because they've now associated from their disassociated state, right? Yes, and you can pre-treat this or treat it with uh, small doses of benzodiazepines. So then if we're going to select ketamine, we know now what the sub-dissociative doses are. What, what is a dosing strategy that we may select for intubating a patient where our goal is to dissociate the patient fully? Your range that you're going to see in any uh, tertiary reference you're going to look this up in is one to two milligrams per kilo. I never use a dose below one and a half milligrams per kilo. And uh, admittedly, I'm extrapolating some data from pediatric patients to adults for this, but it's also kind of anecdotally when I've seen the first dose of ketamine fail. So there is a, a study for uh, for pediatric patients um, showing at a milligram and a half per kilo IV, 95% of those patients were disassociated. And uh, actually, since we're referencing it, I, I might as well make um, I'll make a page uh, with a, a link to that article for your listeners, Sean. I'll make it pharmacyjoe.com slash VCCR, and your listeners can go there. I'll have a link to the study for them. Fantastic. I love it. So in thinking about the dosing, it seems like kind of like Atomidate, you're very comfortable pushing that dose up, rounding up, using the higher end of the spectrum. Is there any downside to picking the higher dose versus, let's say, a one milligram per kilogram? I would say in, not in the context of, of intubation uh, that, that I can think of. You want a general principle um, that you know all the providers are aware of is uh, you want your first attempt to be your best attempt. Uh, so due to the lack of, of adverse effect with higher doses, certainly for these two drugs, atominate and ketamine, that's what I would be using. And thinking about who we shouldn't use ketamine on, you know, with this emergence phenomenon, the, this very real-life nightmare-like scenario, we probably would want to avoid ketamine in patients who have some psychiatric history, who may have some issues with distinguishing reality versus their emergence phenomenon. Are there any other patients that you in your shop would stray away from with ketamine? If, uh, if your patient already has hypertension and tachycardia and you don't want to make it worse, then I would shy away from using it. Perhaps a, uh, a severe uh, sepsis, septic shock patient who you think their catecholamines are depleted and they might have the paradoxic hypotension, I would avoid it. And, uh, and lastly, if you have a stridorous patient, uh, one of the other adverse effects I didn't talk about is uh, laryngospasm. And, and so I wouldn't use it in, in that type of patient. And I know when ketamine first came out, one of the concerns was that it potentially could increase intracranial pressure. Do you have any comment on the validity of that adverse effect? Yeah, this is something that uh, I would say is generally considered debunked. You'll find it in an old textbook, and the reference will be an older textbook. And uh, and really, um, there, there shouldn't really be any concern for this. Uh, there uh, there are some studies. Uh, again, I'll throw one on that on that page for you that kind of show safe ketamine use in head trauma patients or other patients like that. 
And then, you know, we talked about etomidate lasting, let's say, between five and 10 minutes. How long is ketamine going to last for in these patients? It's about the it's about the same as etomidate. It's onset is about 30 seconds, and its duration should be five to 10 minutes. This is with the IV doses. I mean, there is an option for IM dosing of ketamine. Uh, you'd be giving four to five milligrams uh, per kilogram, um, although you're not really going to see that in intubation because you're going to have uh, an IV line uh, there. And obviously, if you're giving it IM, the onset's slower and the duration's longer. Great. Okay. So we've talked about etomidate and ketamine. Uh, I think the next agent to talk about is propofol. And I've kind of beat it up a little bit for the hypotension that we can see with that. What are some of the patients that you would really favor propofol in? And you know, what are some of the considerations with propofol? Sean, I, th- I think you're right to beat it up a little bit. Because uh, when if we're talking sick patients, critically ill patients, the hemodynamic compromise that you can get with propofol is enough to uh, make them code. And, and so I really don't like to use this unless I have a patient who is otherwise doing fairly well or who I think is, maybe has a tremendous cardiovascular reserve that would be able to tolerate the, um, the hypotension that would come along with it. So maybe that, I don't know, like hypertensive emergency causing pulmonary edema type patient may be a a reasonable candidate for propofol? Sure, sure. And... um I don't know. Are you, are you familiar with uh, with John Hines? Uh, he's uh, one, he was very popular in the in the FOMED world. Uh, physician, unfortunately, tragically passed away in a in a motorcycle accident. But he um, w- speaks very charismatically and forcefully against uh, you know don't don't give too much propofol to your patients because you will make them code. He tells a, a hilarious story about a. Um, a hippopotamus that was uh, that was killed while they were trying to sedate it with uh, with too much drug, and he kind of makes the a parallel there to too much propofol. Interesting. Okay, so in terms of propofol, uh, what do we see in terms of its kinetic profile versus etomidate and ketamine in terms of onset and offset? Uh, again, onset is going to be about thirty seconds. The uh, duration might be a little shorter, could be as short as three minutes up to 10. Uh, this is uh, very dose dependent. So depending on how much you give, you, 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 uh, you will see a, a shorter or longer duration accordingly. So we talked about the hypotension. Are there any other side effects that we will see with propofol when we give it for intubating a patient? I would consider that it's a, a myocardial depressant as far as the hypotension and, and heart rate and a CNS depressant. It'll also depress the respiratory drive, especially when given at, uh, at intubating doses. And of course, as you mentioned with ketamine, sometimes the initial intubation attempt is not successful. And if a patient has no respiratory drive, that can complicate things versus if they are able to breathe on their own then. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's something that uh, that the team needs to plan for uh, in, in the event that happens. Yeah. And then, again, in thinking about hypotension, the next thing that happens after intubation is that the patient will typically be put on positive pressure ventilation, which, as hopefully our listeners know, that means that they're going to have less preload on the right side of the heart, which could in turn cause more hypotension. So we've given positive pressure ventilation that causes hypotension. We've given a drug that can cause hypotension. I can kind of understand why some critics of propofol really do beat it up a little bit. Sure. And again, you know, this is in, in your sick patients who don't have the reserve to deal with that. You know, the the, um, the positive pressure ventilation is going to increase the pressure in the intrathoracic cavity. Uh, it's going to decrease venous return to the heart and uh, and could 
initiate a downward spiral really for the patient. So very briefly, I just wanted to touch on kind of a combo drug called Ketofol, which again is kind of uh, something that's been thrown around a lot in the full med world, but also we see it in actual literature, at least in the pharmacy literature, there's data on its stability in a syringe and things like that. Could you just briefly mention what is Ketofol and what is the potential benefit of Ketofol versus ketamine or propofol alone? Sure. Now, um, the the doses that are usually given when when you're giving ketofol, in my opinion, is no different than giving fentanyl and propofol because you end up giving a sub-anesthetic or analgesic-only dose of ketamine and then propofol. And it's true they are stable in the same syringe, but this is a, a practice that I would personally say is unwise uh, because there's going to come a, a point in your procedure where you either need a little bit more analgesia or you need a little bit more sedation. And if you've mixed the drugs in the same syringe, um, then you, you, you're, you're stuck. You've got to give more of something you don't need, uh, and uh, you may have uh, more of an adverse effect. There's, I'd say there's an excellent article uh, set in Annals of Emergency Medicine. I'll, I'll put that, too, in the pharmacyjoe.com slash VCCR page. Uh, and it is a pro versus con for Ketofol. I definitely fall on the con side, which is uh, you shouldn't be putting these things in the two in two syringes. If you want to use ketamine instead of fentanyl and propofol in two separate syringes, you know, go for it. Um, but uh, you know, certainly not my preference to combine them in the same syringe. And just so that the listeners are clear. Ketofol is kind of a, a made-up brand name. Um, there is no product that you can buy on the market with ketamine and propofol combined. This is something that's done at the bedside. Absolutely, yep. Um, and then just before we move on with the next agent, what it, what are the doses that you'll see with propofol when it is selected as a, a sedative agent? Uh, in general, uh, this is also a milligram and a half per kilo. One given IV push um, it can be arranged anywhere from one to two milligrams, although I do like to have the propofol given in smaller aliquots rather than pushing it all, all at once. Again, just to make sure that we've given the minimum amount possible so that uh, we don't experience hypotension. Great. So we've talked about the three most common sedatives. I know that you also wanted to briefly touch on dexmedetomidine with the brand name of Presidex. When do you see dexmedetomidine used, and um, can you tell us more about the drug itself? Sure. Uh, this is an alpha-2 adrenoreceptor agonist similar to clonidine. Uh, it's not a traditional agent for intubation, but it may be useful in certain circumstances where absolutely no respiratory depression can be tolerated. Uh, and I can remember uh, one particular patient was in the midst of a myasthenia crisis, and uh, we were trying to do an awake fiber optic nasal intubation on the patient, and they just were not tolerating it. The physician did not want to give anything that could possibly induce respiratory depression. And finally, be between all of us in the room, we came up with Presidex, uh, and we ended up using it and, uh, and immediately got, got the airway successfully for this patient. So you would say that this is a very niche sedative, wouldn't be normally used except in this very specific patient population then? Yes, yeah. So it would definitely be rare. Uh, you know, typically it doesn't provide anything past moderate sedation, so it wouldn't really fit with uh, your wish of having um, the patient completely unable to recall or or perceive the experience of intubation.
So, you know, we've covered a lot about the sedatives. One problem in the intubation process, even if the patient is deeply sedated, is sometimes they can bite down, they can have spasms, they can have reflexes that um, make the intubation procedure more difficult. So because of that, paralytics are commonly given with the sedative to facilitate intubation. Just like with our sedatives, do we kind of have an ideal paralytic that we would use in the process of intubating a patient? I wish, although um, I, w- I would have to, again, argue, no, there's, uh, there's various properties or, or contraindications or warnings with, with each of the two uh, that I would consider commonly used uh, to prevent either one from being considered ideal. Okay. So uh, what is the go-to paralytic that you see in the ICU that you work in? Interestingly, I would say many of my providers elect to forego a paralytic in most patients. Now, I believe they're considering their patients difficult airways, uh, and and many difficult airway algorithms do skip the paralytic. When we do use a paralytic, and it's much more common in, uh, in emergency medicine, at least at my institution, for a paralytic to be used. But when we do, I would say most providers are still using succinylcholine, uh, and a fair amount, especially uh, younger providers, are using rocuronium. And that's actually really interesting. I would second exactly what you said in the, in the ICU that I work in. The use of a paralytic is maybe one in a hundred patients. It's a very rare circumstance that it's used, whereas in the emergency department, um, it's almost always used. And you know, part of it is the difference in why the patients require intubation and how much time ahead of time do you have to know that they'll require intubation. Um, a lot of patient-specific factors, and probably also a factor of the training that they received. And this is how they normally do it. That's how they were trained, and things like that. Yeah, I, I agree. So in terms of succinylcholine, what what are some of the pros and the cons that you see with succinylcholine that make it your go-to paralytic? And then what are some of the downsides to it? So uh, one of the great things uh, is the onset and the duration really matches most of the other sedatives that we talked about. So uh, maybe it has about a 45-second onset, and spontaneous respiratory effort will resume after about six to eight minutes. Um, It's rapidly hydrolyzed by plasma, so you're not really concerned about the patient's uh, kidney function or liver function. There are there, There's a, a slew of contraindications for succinylcholine that I find are actually commonly misconstrued as, as far as their context of them. Um, so there's this issue with fatal hyperkalemia and all these scenarios that predispose the patient to it, such as uh, burn injury, crush injury, stroke, intra-abdominal sepsis, but uh, the period of, of risk is really five days out from a burn injury or five days out from intradominal uh, sepsis where this uh, risk of fatal hyperkalemia is present. So most of your patients are, are, are not in that period of risk. And, uh, and for the listeners, I would say uh, a text that they could go to if they want a little bit more in-depth explanation uh, of, of specifically succinylcholine, and this is Rosen's Emergency Medicine. Um, their first chapter on airway management uh, really you know, kind of explains it very succinctly. In terms of succinylcholine dosing, what are some of the dosing considerations that come to mind for you? Uh, so for succinylcholine, uh, I would use a milligram and a half per kilogram uh, IV push. Uh, the only other consideration may be if you 
have uh, what's considered a crash airway, so your patient's coded, um, but for some reason their uh, airway muscles are still stiff, uh, you may want to just up your dose to 2 milligrams per kilo for that patient. But otherwise, 1.5 milligrams per kilo IV push of succinylcholine is sufficient. That dosing strategy, is that what you would typically find in most textbooks or uh, drug references, or, or is there a range that other references may report? So one and a half milligrams per kilo is at the top end of what you'll see in a standard reference like Lexicomp or up to date. Uh, they do say one to one and a half milligrams per kilo for intubation. There is a lower dose out there of 0.6 milligrams per kilo, but in my opinion, that's that's too low for when you're doing rapid sequence intubation and you want to get everything right on your first attempt. Again, in thinking about is it better to overshoot or not? Is there kind of any downside to giving a larger succinylcholine dose? Your duration is going to be a little bit longer based on the dose. Um, that's really the, uh, the only downside that I would consider. That's great. So as you said, it's wonderful to have our paralytic match our sedative in terms of the duration of effect. At least with racuronium, that's probably not as true depending on which sedative you select. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit more about the kinetic profile of racuronium and why the the duration matters? Sure. The, um, the onset is just slightly slower. It's going to be about a 60-second onset. And, and for the onset, it's dose-dependent. So you've got to use at least a milligram per kilo, maybe up to 1.2 milligrams per kilo of rocuronium. If you're, if you're looking in references, you might see a lower dose of 0.6 milligrams per kilo. Your, your onset's going to be too slow for, for rapid sequence. Um, the duration is, uh, is one of the key differences here. It's a 30 to 60-minute duration. And, you know, most of the sedatives we talked about have uh, a maximum of a 10-minute duration. Um, so certainly uh, one thing that you want to be mindful of, and one of the reasons I'm a big advocate of having a pharmacist present for intubations, is there's a mismatch there of up to 50 minutes, where if we don't give additional uh, analgesics and sedatives, the patient may be awake but paralyzed. So in thinking about that, if a provider does select racuronium as their paralytic during intubation, what are some of the sedatives or analgesics that you're giving or you're recommending after the intubation is successful in order to prevent the patient from being awake but paralyzed? I'll usually give plenty of fentanyl uh, along with the sedative that was used, at least a mic per kilo, uh, if, if not double that, and, and then some Versed or midazolam, two, four milligrams or so uh, soon afterwards, and that'll buy us time until we decide on what the sedative strategy is going to be for the patient post-intubation, uh, whether it's going to be continuous or intermittent infusions. Okay, so are there any other considerations in selecting succinylcholine versus rocuronium that you think are good clinical pearls or any other considerations? There's a, there's extensive debate uh, about this, both in literature and social media, the FOMAD community. Um, really, my opinion boils down to the differences are so marginal. Um, I want to uh, the physician to be using whatever they are comfortable with, whatever they used in their training. Uh, there's no pro or con in my mind uh, that is big enough to push a, a provider out of their comfort zone. So use what you know. Wonderful. And I think that's probably good advice for a lot of different drug therapies out there. As long as there's not a, a strong, compelling reason to pick one over the other, comfort is probably the best way to avoid things like medication errors and problems with dosing and things like that. Absolutely. 
So given the, the time frame that we have, we just don't have time to cover pretreatments. We don't have time to cover some of the complications of the intubation procedure and complications of the drug therapy that we give. Do you have a couple of references that you would kind of recommend for the, the audience that wants to get more information and delve deeper into some of the other topics related to the intubation procedure? Um, I, my preferred reference is that Rosen's Emergency Medicine Chapter 1. Uh, they just do a fantastic job of explaining this. Um, it's meant for providers. Other, other uh, disciplines like pharmacists can get a lot from it as well. But that would be really a one-stop shop that, uh, that if you want to, to know the ins and outs for, uh, for the pretreatment, the meds, and everything to do with airway management. And I know that you said that you would have references available on your website for a couple of the primary literature articles that you mentioned. Would you mind just repeating that URL for the audience again? Yeah, no problem. I'll make that pharmacyjoe.com slash VCCR. Wonderful. Well, Joe, thank you so much for your time today. And for the audience, thank you for joining us today. But this does conclude this episode of the VCCR Rounds podcast. If you do have topic suggestions or questions you'd like us to address in future episodes, you can tweet your input to at SCCM and use the hashtag VCCR Rounds, so V-C-C-R-O-U-N-D-S. For the VCCR Rounds podcast, I'm Sean Kane. Thank you. Sean Kane received his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Butler University in 2010. In 2011, he completed a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency. In 2012, he received board certification in pharmacotherapy and completed a PGY-2 critical care residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Currently, Dr. Kane is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science in North Chicago, Illinois with a clinical practice site at Advocate Condal Medical Center's Intensive Care Unit in Libertyville, Illinois. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email icriticalcare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.